Uh, this is Steve Varner. Um, I'm one of the sculptors of the Playmates Star Trek line, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. One of my favorite episodes back when this podcast first started was my chat with Scott Henze. If you haven't heard that one, Scott was one of the original sculptors of the Playmate Star Trek figures from the 90s, along with a ton of other toys I played with growing up, and many of which I collect today as an adult. Last year, we heard the exciting news that Playmates got the Star Trek license back to start making new action figures and new toys. And as we get closer to New York Toy Fair towards the end of February, which will hopefully be the very first time these new figures are on display, I wanted to get back to the world of toys. And there's no better person to discuss Star Trek toys with than this week's guest. Steve Varner has been sculpting toys for decades, including those Playmate Star Trek figures, as well as some of the three and three quarter inch Mego figures from the very first motion picture. He's also worked on many other amazing toy lines, including being a sculptor for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from day one of that series. Alongside Skeleton Warriors, Inhumanoids, Cops, Army Ants, Toxic Crusaders, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, DC Properties, Happy Meal Toys, and many, many more. And best of all, Steve and his company are returning to make the new Star Trek toys coming out from Playmates, meaning the franchise is back in good hands. And with that said, it's worth noting that I actually did this interview with Steve quite some time ago. And I hadn't released it because I had some other plans for the video, and I still do. We also did it well before the news broke of Steve sculpting the new Star Trek toys. And to be totally honest, I think it was before even he knew he was going to be sculpting these new toys for them in 2022. So while this interview doesn't have any information about the new products coming out, we are taking a deep dive into some of the best toy lines from the 90s, and getting to know how these figures were made by a master of the craft. Hopefully, we will learn more about the new toys soon, and you can certainly expect a follow-up interview when that happens. But for now, enjoy learning about the man behind the toys and whose work shaped my childhood, and chances are, many of yours, Steve Varner. But before we begin this week's episode, if you'd like to support this show, please don't forget to follow Trek Untold on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to get the latest updates and all sorts of other fun Star Trek-related content. You can also check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can check out the shows before they come out, know about my guests in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, among other benefits coming soon. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the show. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platform that allows for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. If you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. Doing any of those things help keep this show growing and allow me to continue bringing you awesome guests and great conversations every single week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. 
Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining me on the other side of the screen. Well, chances are if you ever played with an action figure in the 80s, 90s, or really just the last 30, 40 years, chances are it was sculpted by the man we're talking to today. That is Mr. Steve Varner. Steve, how's it going today? Good. So you have worked on lines like Playmates, you've worked with Hasbro, you've worked with all the big companies, Diamond Select. Uh, but we're here, of course, to talk specifically about Star Trek. So uh, first things first, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Um, in the 60s, when the show first came out, um, it would uh, air once a week and, you know, I'd make sure I'd watch it. In the beginning, I don't think it was even color. I think it was in black and white. Yeah, I think it was like one of the earliest shows to like really take advantage of color, but not everybody had color TVs yet at the time. Right, exactly. So can you tell us a little bit about where you were born, what your parents did, and what little Steve wanted to be when he grew up? Well, um, let's see, I was born in Minneapolis and uh, lived uh, outside of there for, for till I was about eight and then moved back to Minneapolis. And uh, uh, my parents were, my, my mom was just uh, a homemaker. She didn't work. And my, my dad was like a traveling salesman. And um, I just had a lot of freedom. You know, I was kind of on the outskirts of town and, and, uh, you know, constantly out in the the woods and stuff like that. And I didn't have a lot of toys to play with back then because they action figures weren't even a a thing back then. I mean, they had dolls for girls, but that was about it. And I think I had a robot that was kind of cool, but for the most part, I had to make my own toys. And uh, so that was sort of the impetus of, you know, what I ended up doing later is, you know, I used to, you know, if they were doing road construction somewhere after they were done, I'd jump down in the pit and find a strata of clay and dig my own clay and make stuff and with that and have to pick all the, you know, rocks and stuff out of it. And (laughs) so, you know. I was just a mischievous little kid who just liked to get into all sorts of trouble. And, and sometimes that turned into uh, something creative. Now, were you always an artistic kid growing up as well? Did you spend a lot of time drawing and sculpting? Oh yeah. That's kind of all I did. Uh, Either that or just, you know, outside, you know, playing building forts, that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah. So did you go to a trade school or an art school to continue improving this craft? Or were you thinking about doing something else uh, as that as that formative age before you went to college? Uh, no, I never did. I, uh, uh, you know, after I graduated high school, I just kind of worked, you know, still did stuff on my own. And then uh, later, you know, instead of going to school, I moved out here to California, to Los Angeles. And um a friend of mine was an actor that uh, ended up being my roommate, and uh, he had a lot of contacts with prop shops and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I, I uh, uh, met a guy by the name of Jack Shafton who had a prop shop that made things for television commercials and uh, TV shows and that sort of thing. And that's where I, you know, learned, basically. He had me do everything you know, mold making, sculpting, painting. Um, And in the beginning, you know, after that, when I moved on to another uh, uh, company, I I actually worked as a painter for a few years before I ever got into sculpting. And uh, it wasn't exactly that easy to find jobs sculpting, but I was lucky enough to 
kind of apprentice with some of the people at these shops that were really, really skilled. And, uh, and then eventually I got a job sculpting uh, for a guy, uh, a place called Fantasy Fair that um, did uh, all the dark, the dark ride for um, uh, uh, Knott's Berry Farm. And I, so I sculpted all the, you know, walk around suits and, you know, props and that sort of thing. And then later I moved on to the motion picture industry and got a job in, uh, in the union as a, as a sculptor back then. And that probably still, you had to join the, the plasters union in order to be a sculptor because sculptors didn't have their own union. They were just part of another union. <laughs> so, and, uh, uh, so, you know, I did uh, sculpted for movies and um, uh, sculpted King Kong for De Laurentiis, the, that big 40-foot King Kong, and just literally learned on the job, which to me I thought was the best way to do it because it's one thing to go to school and then you got to go out and try to convince people to give you a job. Well, they gave me a job and taught me. <laughs> So it was really cool, actually. So you're picking up all this really great experience. You're learning a lot. Uh, how did you get your feet into the front door of a toy company and start sculpting that kind of thing? Well, um, after uh, I did King Kong for De Laurentiis, I kind of got a lot of publicity. I was in, I don't know, I got my picture in Time Magazine and People and a bunch of stuff, 40 feet up sculpting it, you know, you know, wielding a sawzall carving and uh, uh, so at the time, my wife, at the time anyway, um, uh, worked for a law firm. And uh, one of the lawyers was on the board of directors of Mattel, just so happened. <laughs> and so, you know, I'd, I'd sometimes go pick her up from work and talk to these guys and stuff. And they were really interested in what I was doing because it was like in Time Magazine, People Magazine and stuff. And, and so... I, I told this guy, uh, Tom Liu, I said, you know, I'd really like to get a job at Mattel. I'm kind of tired of having to use, you know, heavy equipment to do sculpting. And I'd like to sit at a desk and do it. So he uh, arranged uh, an interview um, for me with actually the president of Mattel at the time. So once I interviewed with him, they just, you know, I was kind of just shoehorned in the door, you know, and and then again, I learned toy sculpting there, you know, and I had some great teachers, just some of the best doll sculptors in the world, because uh, Mattel, you know, their bread and butter is dolls. It's not action figures or anything like that. And it still is. And so they had some really, really good people that I learned from. And uh you know, later after I decided to leave there, I just uh, the first job I got after that was um, uh, doing some aliens for Star Trek, the second Star Trek movie. And it was because I had been doing some freelancing uh, with a company called Magic Cam, which is was sort of like Paramount's version of uh, uh, what's Electric Light and Magic or whatever, like the 
And uh, so I knew the owner of that company and he, he got the job for the Star Trek aliens and said, well, you want to do it? And I went, yeah, well, I'm quitting anyway, so I might as well do it. And that was my first job out the door. And I did, I think, four or five or six of those. And, and then from there, it just snowballed. After I did that, I just kept getting calls from one company after another. One of my buddies left uh, Mattel and he started at Kenner uh, running the sculpting department over there. So he gave me a lot of jobs and, and uh, you know, it just, it just, you know, through word of mouth, you just start getting, and as long as you do a good job, you just keep getting more work. So uh, let me ask you a little bit more about those Mego Star Trek figures. Cause that was for the very first Star Trek motion picture. So, you know, right. at that time, I mean, how far in advance were you getting these reference images to do these aliens? Ah, uh, golly, I don't really remember. I mean, I was I was right in with the company that was doing all the that Magicom was doing all the uh, uh, the motion shots of the ships and stuff like that. So I was kind of working with the guys right on the Paramount lot. So I, I got stuff pretty early. So what sort of things were you privy to that early on that folks like me would never have known about? Oh my gosh, I don't know. I mean, I, I was there and I, I, it's, I really didn't know what other people were seeing, but I was seeing quite a bit. I mean, sometimes I just hang out and watch them set up the shots of all the ships and stuff. And, and, uh, they would set them all up. And then at the end of the day, before everybody left, they just sort of like hit a button. Everybody had to leave the studio so they could shoot it in absolute, you know, quiet and darkness. And uh, so that was kind of interesting. And at, before that, I, I was doing um, sculpting some uh, architectural friezes and stuff for the Alexandrian library that they were also doing for Carl Sagan. So I was working with uh, him on that, too. And uh, uh, I don't know, it was, it, you know, once you're in the middle of things, it's, it's sort of like you're privy to all sorts of stuff. So are you aware about how rare those aliens have become since they first came out? Because those are really, you know, among the hottest and some of the hardest to find Star Trek, the motion picture figures. I thought they were pretty terrible, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it was, I was still, I was still pretty raw when I did those. (laughs) What didn't you like about those figures? I just that they were pretty stiff and the detail was good, but you know, there's, it would have been nice to make a little bit more uh, action poses or something. But, you know, back then, you know, um, it was the engineers that dictated everything at toy companies. Us sculptors just had to snap to and do what they said. And uh, only later when uh, um, McFarlane got in the mix, he kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, tore that whole thing wide open so that we could start, you know, really you know, doing action poses and stuff like that. So after that, it got a lot more fun, actually. So before we jump too deeper into more Star Trek stuff, I actually want to ask about a few other lines that you worked on, because you've got a ton of stuff that you've done. Uh, So I know you've done stuff with Barbie, with Strawberry Shortcake, Big Jim, Mm -hmm. uh, and then you did a bunch of things for Hasbro also, like the Inhumanoids, Cops, Army Ants. Uh, So I'm just curious, you know, like, can you kind of run down... Uh, just a, a sort of almost resume of all the different lines you've worked on from that era. I know it's a lot. We're going to be here if you do all of them oh, all day, but I mean, I, I can't even remember all those. I mean, would you, uh, you know, talk about the inhumanoids and ant, army ants and all those things. I kind of forget about those, but yeah, we did all those. 
And um, I don't know how much I did on Big Jim. That's the only thing, because uh, I think he was kind of after I left Mattel. But um, I may have worked on it, but I just it would have been on a freelance capacity. I don't I don't really remember exactly. But there was tons of stuff. Well, I know there's one in particular, and this kind of brings us ahead into our Playmates discussion. Uh, and that's you were among basically the first people to work on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles line. And uh, right. you know, we spoke with yeah. uh, with Scott last time as well, and he talked about that. So I'd like to hear uh, how you got involved with that and what your contributions were to the very first line. Well, I, I'm the one that sculpted the very first turtle. I mean, they just basically came to me, this guy, John Handy, that was working at Playmates. And they were a really a young company at the time. They had bought the license. He showed me the black and white comic book. And he just said, you know, we love the storyline, but, you know, the, the style of the turtles has to be made a little bit more marketable. So, you know, can you put your spin on it? So that was the only direction I got. And I sculpted a, a very a static little figure which I think I have here somewhere. Oh, yeah, it's right over here. Do you want me to grab it? If, if you're able to, sure. I'd love to see that. So here's here's the very first turtle that I did. Let me open up the front of this. It's not being shown very well. So I just did a little clay sculpt of, of this guy. And this is all they really had for that first year at, um, at uh, Toy Fair. And they just painted them up, you know, four different colors, the same turtle. And uh, it just took off gangbusters. It was just pure luck, actually. Well, kind of pure luck. But it, you, you have to kind of think about what happened prior to that, about a year prior to that. Um, we had been doing tons of action figures for all the different toy companies. And at that time, um, that you were they were able to advertise the toys during the the actual you know uh cartoon show like for instance uh you know uh strawberry shortcakes i mean they could during their their tv show they could advertise the toys well mothers all got together and just went this is unfair this is just you know you're manipulating our kids and all this stuff and what the word on the street was at that point was that um, action figures were dead. They were never going to be done again. They were over. So we went from sculpting, you know, probably, you know, four or five action figure lines at the same time, all the time to nothing. And then when the Ninja Turtle thing happened, at first I thought it was kind of silly but as I got into it, I thought, well, this is really cool. This is so different than what we have done. Because I think prior to this, I had had like three or four companies all asking me to sculpt uh, or to bid on doing uh, alien cowboys, and uh, which seemed really strange to me. Um, but then, you know, this was this was so different that I, I really got into it. And then I, I liked it. And, I'm, I'm really glad it took off because it was a fun one to take off. Yeah. I mean, you and the team really just went all out with these figures. They are, they were at the time groundbreaking. They remain amazing to this day. Uh, so mm -hmm. can, can you remind us uh, which figures you worked on specifically and which, you know, uh, Scott worked on? Oh my gosh. 
I'd have to have a list. Yeah. Um, we did, we basically did the good guys and he basically did the bad guys, but sometimes we did bad guys and sometimes he did, you know, the turtles or the good guys. And, uh, but you know, that's kind of the way the division was. And, uh, you know, it's kind of all the humor and stuff that, that went along with it, you know, was just because we were all a bunch of wacky sculptors and, you know, it just, <laughs> we just like get in and brainstorm things and just yuck it up and whatever we, whatever ridiculous thing we came up with that seemed like they liked. So it was great. Uh, obviously, we could do a whole other episode just about turtle toy history. We're not going to do that today, but just one last thing before mm-hmm. we move on. Uh, is there a piece that is a favorite of yours from those turtles? Ah, golly, I like so many of them. I love the cave turtles. I like the the dinosaurs that went along with them. I love the the Indian turtle, the cowboy turtle. Oh my gosh. I mean, there's not too many that I don't like, except for the very robotic ones. You know, it's not, it just wasn't my favorite, but we did them. I mean, we sculpted them and we did a good job. They just weren't my favorite. And I'm sure a lot of people, they were their favorites. In fact, I know they are from our Instagram account, but (laughs) um, you know, they weren't mine. Now, you're also responsible for making the Star Trek Ninja Turtles, right? Yes. In fact, I have one behind me. Let me just grab this real quick. Well, first of all, here's the original Captain Kirk wax. This is the original wax. And then and then we did, you know, the the uh, Captain Kirk Ninja Turtle as well. And the others, too. We did Scotty and and uh, and Bones and. I can't remember who else, uh, a Spock. So, I mean, so we did all those as well. So when you guys are doing that, is that with Paramount? Like, are they telling you, here's who we want, here's what we want you guys to do? Or is this kind of just a Ninja Turtle thing that the company decided to do that because they have the Star Trek license? No, they the Playmates decided to do it. And then, of course, they had to get approval from both. But, you know, since they were kind of in with um, uh, uh uh, paramount because they had the star trek license and that with the ninja turtle guys who were really easy to deal with um at the time uh uh you know they were able to do the crossover and and with with uh total approval which was great so you're working at playmates and you're already doing the ninja turtles how did you get involved in the star trek toys at, you know at that point you know playmates pretty much through whatever they whatever license they can't they 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 got, they negotiated, you know, they'd come to us with it first. And, you know, we just, you know, never turned anything down. We just, well, yeah, sure. It sounds great to us. And, you know, so we just uh, uh, ended up sculpting all of those as well. And again, Scotty did half of them and we did half of them for the most part. There were some other people, you know, Steve Hicks and, Roger Boggs, I don't know if Roger Boggs did any of those or not, but Rudy Vap, um, you know, did some of those things uh, as well. So can you describe for us the process of how an action figure gets made? I'm talking about from like initial sketch all the way to whenever your job is done. So can you kind of walk us through that entire process? Well, you know, first there would be usually a pencil sketch that would be done. Uh, Sometimes we do a... uh, there'd be like turnarounds or something like that. Start with the drawings. 
And then we would, uh, at the time, we would make like a wire armature and then we would put clay on that and get it as close as far as we can in clay because you you can only do so much detail in clay. And then after that, we would make a rubber mold. We would pour the, our wax and uh, um, and then uh, do all the final detail in the wax. Sometimes we would put the armatures right into the clay, and then other times we'd put them into the wax later. So when it came time to posing the figures. Who was responsible for that? Did you get to decide how the toy was posed or would that have been like a marketing executive or Paramount or CBS? Well, we'd usually initially do it, but um, it would be, it wouldn't really be Paramount so much as it would be some of the guys over at Playmates. Uh, they were, you know, like Carl Aronian and, and Mark Hathrell. They were over at the studio all the time and fighting with us and uh, which, which actually just made it more fun actually. But um, yeah, so that that's kind of how it would go. I mean, we, I mean, sometimes they'd get involved in the posing, and other times, if they liked what we did, they just let it go. So the reason I ask is because a lot of folks are curious about that very first wave of Star Trek Playmates toys. Because those, for the most part, you know, some were pretty static, but a few other characters like Worf in particular, and also Riker, uh, the Frangi, they're all in some pretty dynamic poses that make it a little difficult to actually stand them up. Uh, do you remember mm-hmm. what the story is behind some of those figures and why they're posed in more dynamic positions? I, I really don't remember exactly. We were probably trying to get them in dynamic poses and, and, uh, but you know, probably once they came out and realized that they didn't stand up that well, we probably went back to, uh, less, you know, to more static poses, you know, because they were articulated too. I mean, some of them were articulated more than others, but, you know, once we put the knee joints in and, and that kind of stuff that kind of helped uh, to get in better poses. Well, here's the million dollar question for you. And this has been like the most requested thing of all for me to ask you sculptors uh, for that very first wave of the Riker figures. Why is the Riker shirt and leg all torn up? I really don't know, but I think there was an episode where he got in a fight or something and, and his shirt was all torn up. I, I can't, I think, I can't remember exactly what the episode was, but I think they were on some planet and, and he had to fight some of the aliens or something and got ripped up. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. All right. Well, that's a mystery. We'll hopefully unravel one day because no one really knows the full, full answer to that still. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, was your team responsible for sculpting the accessories as well? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. but so, not vehicles, not vehicles, just handheld accessories, that sort of thing. So when you guys are making this, I mean, again, this kind of goes back into the process of how toys are made. Typically, uh, it's my understanding that toys are sculpted as two-ups. So they'll be sculpted at double the size and then shrank down for production. So when you guys are doing accessories, are you sculpting two-ups of them or are you just doing them right away super tiny? No, we were doing them one-to-one. Like when we, when we initially did the first wave of turtles, Ninja Turtles, they had us do the first ones twice up. Uh, but then after that, I, I talked to Carl over at Playmates. Um, and because I had been doing a lot of work with Kenner and they were starting to do, use something called Brilliant Tooling, which you could do more one-to-one. I think it was like maybe 106% or something like that. And um, I just thought that was a much better way to get detail and um, also... You know, when you're doing it twice up, you never really know what it's going to feel like when it gets down to the right size. 
So I felt that, you know, we'd get a better feeling for what the final toy would be doing it that way. And, you know, they, they went along with me. And then from that point on, we did everything. You know, I think it was 106% up, very close to one to one. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay, to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces like 10 Forward from the Enterprise D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch enemy of Worf, barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Jonathan Frakes. If you're of a certain age, you may remember me as Commander Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. And my wonderful brother Daniel died with pancreatic cancer 24 years ago. They opened him up, they diagnosed, they said, you've got six months to live. And that was it. He died four months later. And at that time, there was a 3% survival rate. Since then, we've grown to the embarrassingly high number of 10%. But a dear friend of mine and probably all of yours, Kitty Swink, is one of those 10%. She has survived pancreatic cancer for 17 going on 18 years. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate that's just 10%. And more than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021. More than 48,000 will die from the disease because symptoms are often vague and be hard to detect. That's why I'm supporting the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocacy organization committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research in early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers like you who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support our important mission by donating today at pancan.org. Thanks for your time. We now return to Trump Untold. 
So as the line went on, the articulation was often changed, sometimes minimized, and then sometimes brought back to the way it was, and sometimes even being mm-hmm. improved. So when this typically happens in a toy line, how does that affect the sculpting team, and who's making that decision? Playmates is making that decision. It's usually cost decisions. It, it usually has to do with, you know, how, how expensive the toy would get to be made. And, it, you know, if they wanted to spend the extra money or if they didn't want to spend the extra money. We usually didn't have a, too much say in it, although we would fight them, but we would only win sometimes, you know. <laughs> So what sort of reference material did you have when you were working? Were you actually given stuff by the TV show, or did you have to go out and get some Star Trek magazines or some issues of Fangoria or whatever it was and figure things out on your own? Um, Usually they would send us videotapes, and they would send us a lot of stills. Um, We didn't really get too much much in the way of control drawings or anything other than our weapons. And uh, so, you know, we we, we would just go from... from, uh, Photos and videotapes, usually. So when we're talking about some of these Star Trek toys, certain shows during the time you worked on them, like DS9 and like Voyager, you guys were making toys basically to coincide with the release of the first season of the show. So mm-hmm. do you recall how far in advance you got to know things and uh, how secretive was that process? Yeah, it was always pretty secretive because, you know, they don't want things out before it was released. But we would get things ahead of time because, I mean, we'd be u- working usually a year in advance as well. So what, as soon as they had you know, tape or, or stills, you know, there's usually some still photographers, you know, hanging out at the set and they're taking a lot of stills too. We'd get those. We get, well, some of them anyway. So I'm curious too, because, you know, talking about Star Trek Voyager, I don't know if you are ever aware of this and this is what I've gotten some questions about. Uh, Originally the role of Captain Janeway was not going to be played by Kate Mulgrew and they Mm -hmm. had done a screen test with Genevieve Bouillard as the character. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. did you ever receive reference material for Genevieve? to do a toy out of you know what i really don't remember god we just did so many things it's it's hard you know (laughs) and i i was always more focused on the you know technical sculpting of it more than what was actually going on in the show um although i watched the shows and i liked them but you know i just it, it wasn't my first uh priority and so on that subject of articulation also, and talk about how it's changed over time, I think one of the lines that you also worked on that had amazing articulation in that era was the Sequest line. And I think that's where you right. guys did some stuff that would ultimately be transitioned into the Star Trek line. So uh, can you recall like what you guys do with the Sequest figures and why that was then brought into the Star Trek figures? You know, I'm not really sure. We probably just got more latitude with the uh, Sequest. I know uh, my partner, Ed, he was really involved in the Sequest stuff. I was more um, just helping him, whereas a lot of times it was the other way around. But And then uh, my partner, Eddie, was always very aggressive at going after them and, you know, badgering them into getting what he wanted. And uh, so that's probably why. I can't tell you for sure, but most likely. And then, and then at some point, they probably realized, well, it's not so bad to put this extra articulation in the in the figures so that you just kind of float over onto star trek and other characters and we had a lot of meetings where we were just fighting with people for art for articulation the one thing that we'd never really got that much that i really wanted was we needed good ankle articulation because you can't get you can't really pose them if you can't make the foot go up and down you know and uh but you know they 
didn't want to give on that for some reason. I don't know why. So on the subject of articulation here, you know, the female figures in particular typically did not have a lot of articulation. And that's not to say characters like Kira or Janeway or Dax, you know, they would have the typical Starfleet uniform articulation. But then you had right. characters like Lita, like Luxana Troy, uh, like mm-hmm. Attendant Kira or, or uh, Keiko. And they all had pretty much not the greatest articulation. So was there a mandate for certain female characters to be less articulated to kind of keep a certain shape? Or was that just an aesthetic choice made in the design process? Well, it really comes down to how many they thought they were going to sell of each. And typically, they felt that the girl figures weren't going to sell as well. So they weren't going to put as much money into them. And I mean, I, I wish it wasn't that way, but that's what they would tell us, you know. And uh, we would try to fight them, but sometimes we'd win. Usually we wouldn't. So to follow up with things that you may have known in advance, uh, something I think that you guys did know in advance was for the Star Trek Generations film, what the uniforms looked like. However, mm-hmm. as the production of the film went on, so did the uniforms. And uh, mm-hmm. when the toys actually came out, the toys had one uniform, the movie had another. Do you recall anything happening about that? Or do, do you recall anything from that time period related to those uniforms? Uh, not really, but it's not unusual for the movies to have different uniforms than the, than the TV shows. So... I guess we didn't really think it was that strange. Well, basically, yeah, the toys had like the designs that were meant to be in the movie and ultimately they just scrapped and went back to what was in the TV show. So it was a very bizarre mm-hmm. thing. And basically, the only relic of that is those action figures. Hmm. Wow. I didn't know that. So you guys did some amazing work on the likenesses, too. I need to totally compliment you guys on that because, uh, you know, I own some of the wax okay. heads and some of the hard copies of these things. And, mm-hmm. you know, what got produced, it doesn't do it justice. It's such amazing right. work that oh, you guys I know. did. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of likeness rights and that kind of thing, you know, and you're working with actors here, uh, who was the pickiest about their face that you'd always get feedback on and have to make changes to? Golly, I don't really remember back then. I mean, everybody, you know, had changes all the time. So uh, I don't think any of them were horrible. Um, And I did most of the portraits myself. That was one of the things I like to control because I love doing portraits. So. That's uh, that was my main contribution to most of these things. But I, I don't remember any of them being horrible. Uh, I, I do remember other people being I'm doing like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, my God. Sarah Gello was just horrible. Just so picky. And so I don't know, just I, I don't know. I don't there, there's a number of them that number of people but i don't remember any of the star trek guys being all that bad and just just for uh, clarification those buffy items were those like the diamond select statues you did or our our asylum pieces which one were those um i i i actually bought the license myself and i was manufacturing them myself but i was selling through diamonds so yeah they were going through diamond okay yeah, cause I, I remember seeing those Those are also some really great pieces too and uh, yeah they were surprised fun. it was fun but yeah it, it was it was uh I don't know if it was really her or her agent. I have a feeling it wasn't really her, but there was somebody over there that was just a nightmare. So, you know, as we mentioned, the faces when you guys were sculpting them have all this great, wonderful detail. There's all these lines that you don't see in the production version. So uh, can right. you kind of explain what happens from when a toy goes out of your hands and goes into the factories? Like what happens that all that detail is lost? Well, you know, things end up getting smoothed out. And um, another thing that, that people don't really know or or understand it. Even the toy companies don't. I keep telling them, and it's like, I don't know, they just forget or something, that when you're doing especially the heads, you need to make them just 
slightly bit wider than what you want them to be in production because they're always going to shrink more side to side than up and down. So that's why if you look at those last Star Trek characters that were done from the from the last movie, thank God we didn't do them. Um, but I mean, they ended up being so skinny. Every character was practically unrecognizable just because they just shrunk in like this and kind of sunk in and stuff. And you got to kind of compensate for that when you're doing it. And it's really hard to get the, when you get the approvals to get them to understand that. Um, I mean, to tell you the truth, sometimes it's better just to do it, get it approved and then change it a little bit before it goes, just because you know it's going to happen. So on a lot of those likenesses, the characters typically have a very kind of neutral facial expression. I can name a few that, like Worf, would have a growling face. I think he had like kind of more of a mm-hmm. growly face in that first one. But, you know, you had characters like Neelix, for example, who is known for his smile, but his face mm-hmm. is very much neutral. Or you'd have Garrick from Deep Space Nine, and, you know, again, no signature Garrick smirk. It's just kind of a very neutral, sort of bland expression. So right. was there like a reason for the fact that you guys went with that direction? What was... Did you have some kind of mandate to basically go with a more neutral facial expression or was that just a choice that was made along the way? Well, it's always a little bit risky to go with, you know, open mouth and showing teeth and that sort of thing. So, I mean, even though we would do it sometimes, sometimes it works, sometimes it just kind of looks hideous. Um, And and you're really um, dependent on how well the manufacturing does. So you're, you're, you've got a better chance of having it go all the way through manufacturing and everything and looking decent if the mouths aren't open and there's not teeth exposed and that sort of thing. So as an artist, did you prefer sculpting the humans or the alien characters? I, I like the humans. I, I like doing human faces, but, you know, they're both fun. Um, you know, I enjoy doing monsters and stuff like that as well. But it's just it's two different things. It's like apples and oranges. Was there a character in particular that you found to be very challenging to sculpt? No, I, I not really. I don't think so. They were, you know, they were all fun. To, I mean, I loved, like I said, I love doing portraits. So I, I kind of enjoyed all of them. So you also, I believe, were responsible for sculpting the likenesses on, uh, I believe, the original series figures, right? Like you just showed us the Kirk before. That, that was all your handiwork? For the most part, yeah. I would have people start things. And then at a certain point, once from the rough stage, I'd usually take it on from rough to finish. So do you remember much about working on those lightnesses? Because I think those are really like the most beautiful among uh, the Star Trek stuff. Really, they, they still stand out. I own a few of those heads, in fact. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're really amazing lightnesses. And uh, yeah. yeah, I think they're definitely some of the best. Uh, did you remember ever having any interactions with any of the actors discussing them or working on lightnesses, getting it down right? Uh, do you remember much about the production of that particular series? No, not really. I mean, we never interacted with the uh, with the actors. You know, it was usually just the people at Playmates. Although I did have data come up to me at uh, Comic-Con one year, and I had a whole row of all these Star Trek heads. And he was sitting there looking at him, and, he go, and I, I looked at him, and I said, yeah, I've sculpted you lots of times. And he goes, what do you mean? You don't know who I am, do you? And I went, yeah, I know who you are. Because <laughs> he didn't have his makeup on or anything. And it was, you know, it was kind of a fun interaction. I hope another day we're going to do a follow up with you and Scott together. I'm going to basically flash a whole bunch of figures on the screen and ask you who remembers what. 
but uh, yeah, I do have one here that, today. That would be interesting, actually. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's gonna be planned for the next episode. But uh, I did right. know that you were responsible for a lot of the Ferengi characters, and I'm curious if you remember anything about this. So there was a figure you guys did of a character named Rom, and he came with mm. a little minifigure of his son Nog. So what's weird about that is, uh, you know, I believe Jake Cisco got the same treatment, but eventually Jake got his own full-sized, fully articulated action figure. Nog mm-hmm. never did. He always was just stuck with that little weird minifigure. Uh, and I think same with Alexander Rojenko. He always had just a little tiny dinky thing here. So mm-hmm. do you recall if there were ever plans for Nog to get a completely articulated figure? I, I don't. I, I really don't. I mean, if he was really small, they probably just packed him out as an accessory. Is that how it worked? I, I can't remember. That's essentially what it was. He was an accessory. Yeah, that's the way they did stuff. Yeah. So that, that would make sense. Now, I heard a rumor from somebody that Tony Todd, that there's going to be a figure of his Herosian character from Star Trek Voyager, uh, and that was ultimately never released. Is there any truth to that claim? And, uh, well, yeah, I'll start with that. Is there any truth to that claim? I, I really don't remember. I'd have to look through my stuff and see if we ever did one. There's a lot of stuff that we did that was never released. It's just, um, it's more like it gets, uh, I find out more from the fans than than anything else. Because uh, if they didn't get released half the time, I didn't even know it because I wasn't, you know, checking the toy stores to make sure that everything came out. But a lot of other people were. So they I, I usually hear it from fans more than anything else. I mean, yeah, I've definitely got a list here of some rumors and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, off the top of your head, can you recall anybody that was planned to be made, but ultimately didn't pan out? In Star Trek? Not really. I, there was plenty of Ninja Turtles that 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 did but um i i don't really remember when it comes to star trek and star trek was pretty encompassing you guys got a lot done in a pretty pretty decent period mm-hmm. of time as well it was a very long lasting line oh you know what i have something behind me that that never got made and the only reason i knew that they uh because we sculpted them but the only reason i knew that they never got made was i was uh doing some manufacturing on some resins and stuff. And I was contacting factories in China and asking them to send me examples of their work. And they ended up sending me this whole line of stuff that had never got uh, Star Trek characters that had never got made. If you want, I can grab one and show you. Yes, please. Oh yeah. Yeah. Here, I'll I'll grab one here. Here's a Kirk that these, this was a resin character with this background that was never made. And the only reason I, I found out that it was like this is because the factory actually sent it to me as not anything to do with Playmates, but as something independently I was doing. Um, and uh, so so there's uh, Kirk. And here's, uh, I forgot the name of the character, but it was uh, Ricardo Montalban. Is, um, oh, that's Khan. Khan, yeah, of Khan, which I love the character. Um, so... Neither one of these had ever been made. And I just, I only have them because a factory sent them to me. Yeah, those are really we amazing. We sculpted looking. them. We just sculpted the figures. We didn't sculpt the backgrounds. They put those on together in China. Yeah, those are really great looking figures. They were. I don't understand why they didn't make them. I think they would have sold like crazy. In fact, they could probably sell them now. Now, for our viewers who are now uh, listening to this podcast, you're not going to be able to see this, but for our YouTube audience, you're going to enjoy checking this out. So, Steve, uh, which boar queen is that you have in your hands right now? Um, which one? I don't know. It just says it's just Borg Queen. What wasn't there only one Borg Queen? I think the one you have in your hands is the Latinum edition Borg Queen. 
Um, so there was the Latin edition, and then there's also the uh, action figure of her, which people call it one of the best of all time. Um, I'm actually, I was actually curious about the Latinum collection too, because no one really talks about those uh, statues that were done. Those are pretty interesting pieces, also. Yeah, they they um, uh, they only did those for a short period of time. They had us do a, a bunch of those, and that you know, which you know, Khan and and uh, and um, Captain Kirk over here, they were you know would have been part of if they were to come out. But I think they had high hopes for uh, doing well with that, but. There, you know, Playmates is a sort of a high volume. Uh, usually, you know, their their whole mo is high volume, low price, and that's you know how uh, you know that's their business model. And um, so, when we did this, they really wanted to try to do more of a high end collector's uh, uh, version, and it never met the numbers that they were satisfied with, so they dropped it. So let me tell tell you something about the Borg Queen, though, because there was one Borg Queen that I sculpted that was extremely intricate, intricate, and uh, uh, I never um, it never came out. It was you know a little uh, four and a half or five inch figure, and she she was sculpted so that she sort of came apart, and you could pull her head off. And it had the spine attached to it, and it plugged into the figure. So you could take the head off with the spine <laughs> separately, but then it never got it never got made. And uh, the guy, uh, Chris Overly, who was working at Playmates at the time that had me do it, later he really wanted to get a copy of one of those for himself. And I couldn't find it and I couldn't find it. And then uh, I was going through storage one day and I did find it. Uh, and then I lost it again. I, I, don't, I, I would love to find it and just make a mold on it or something because I, I think it was just the wax. It never went beyond wax. I think that one did come out. That's the one I'm pretty sure I have. It actually has a move. Oh, molds. you do? Yeah, that one actually. It's, and that's People say it's like one of the best of all time, in fact. Oh, yeah. I sculpted that totally myself. And, and uh, it, it was so cool. I would like to get one of those. I didn't know it came out. Wow, that's cool. Because I don't have any hard copies of it or anything. I just had the I just had the wax. <laughs> oh yeah, it's like such an amazing figure. That's one like everybody wow. loves. I never really talk about the line. That's like usually the first one that gets mentioned. Yeah, I love that one too. So I can understand it. Yeah. Now on the topic of characters maybe that you didn't love quite so much, was there ever one that you were really kind of disappointed with when it came time for the final product? A lot of those. Um well, I mean, you know, just because a, a lot of the arms and legs and, and stuff ended up you know, when they went through manufacturing, you know, it just, they kind of felt sort of like, you know, tubes instead of, you know, arms and legs. And, and you couldn't really see any of the subtle folds or, or anything like that. They just kind of got washed out and the fingers always got fattened up. So they were like sausages and just in general, that, that really bothered me. Um, but I'm sure they did it because it was hard to manufacture it otherwise. And they were just, you know, erring on the the side of caution. You know, uh, I wish they wouldn't have. That's the one thing I liked about McFarland. He, he like, made sure that that shit didn't happen. 
Well, one of the toys I think that is universally loathed on the other end of the spectrum would be Edith Keeler. So this is the one and only four-inch action figure of her, of Joan Collins, from Star yeah. Trek, the original series. Uh, you know, I, I have that toy. I enjoy the likeness, but that's really kind of where it ends for me. I mean, she's got not the greatest accessories, um, mm-hmm. and she can barely even stand up. Uh, did you work on Edith Keeler? I, I really don't remember. Maybe. Um, I remember the figure. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure if I did or not. Uh, it wasn't very memorable for me. So. Now, were you also responsible for like the nine and the 12 inch doll figures? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how did that come about? Because I mean, you guys are basically doing all these action figures and all of a sudden now you're jumping into like Mego scale and even bigger. You're going back to basically Barbie scale toys. That's kind of a big jump, big change in product. Yeah, I was kind of surprised too, but they did. They just asked us to do them and, you know, we just were dutiful people. We just did what we were told. So (laughs) and and, and I didn't mind doing it. I, you know, I. I kind of like the smaller ones a little bit better. The nine inch were kind of nice uh, because they were big enough, you know, to get a lot of detail, but yet, you know, s- you know, small enough to still um, set on a shelf. Well, and, and I don't know when things get a little bit too big, they get a little weird. I think anyway. Now you told me uh, you had a story about meeting Jerry Ryan one day, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, uh, I did the seven of nine uh, uh, resin. They had me bring it over to a photo shoot where she was going to be shot for the cover of the magazine. So I go over to, it was at somebody's house and I'm just sitting in the living room on the couch and stuff. And then she came in and yeah, I was just jean and t-shirts and, and stuff. And she looked just, you know, like a normal normal girl. I mean, you know, attractive and everything, but not, not anything special. She goes in the hair and makeup and like, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, or maybe it was an hour comes back out. And I'm just like, Holy crap, man, she was gorgeous. I mean, it was just unbelievable how she transformed. And, um, it just, it just shows you what, what, you know, makeup and clothes and, and all that stuff and wardrobe can really do. Um, you know, the same, I, I felt the same, same way with Laura Croft when we did the Laura Croft stuff. I mean, they sent me, you know, turns of her, you know, and like uh, sweats, you know, with her arms out and stuff in the beginning and, you know, to, to do sculpting. And then later, you know, when we get shots from the movies and stuff where, I mean, I mean, with the turn, I mean, she was just like straight. She had no curves or anything. But once they put her in that outfit, I mean, she had this like hourglass figure. And it's just, wow. It just, it's just amazing what can be done. So I got a real weird one for you now, Steve. I'm actually going to try and show this to you on camera. Hopefully you can remember something about it. But I got this uh, from a prototype collector. And I'm now the proud owner of this piece here. And mm-hmm. what this is is it's a golden Picard. It's a vac metalized Picard. Do you recall mm-hmm. what the heck this is about? I don't know. It sounds like that's something that Playmates like to do that um, as like a special editions or sometimes they would do them and then just give them to, um, you know, uh, uh, special clients and things like that. They they did that with Ninja Turtles and stuff too. Um you know, and then if it was well liked enough, I guess they just put it out in production. 
So do you have one Star Trek piece, or maybe do you have a bunch of Star Trek pieces in particular that are your favorites that you've worked on? I like I like a lot of them, mainly the the portrait heads, and I have a a bunch of them behind me. Actually, Khan is really I really like like him a lot. I like the Kirk stuff. I like everything from the first series because you know I, I love that show as a kid. I mean, I was like, got a teenager or younger when that first came out, and uh, so everything that we did from that line I really like. Um, all the, all the portrait stuff I, I really like. Um, here's a, just a rough Spock. It's a, just a clay, you know, and then we finished it later, of course. Here's, here's a, a pike, which was, these are all like fun. I mean, fun for me. I mean, I guess fun for some people and me are two different things. And then, uh, uh, a Kirk. This is just a rough one before we finished it off in wax. And um, so all that's, I mean, I love all those things. So just, I still like them. I'm, I'm, I love that. I still have them. I'm, I'm also kind of a pack rat, so I never throw anything away. I've got literally five storage units, you know, 10 by 20 full of this. Shit. <laughs> it just, I can't throw anything away. It's just, it's just horrible. Well, whenever you're ready to have a yard sale, just give me a call. I'll come right over. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Believe me, I get a lot of people asking me that. Now, were you aware that some of these Playmates figures were actually featured in episodes of Star Trek Voyager? I don't remember. I, I don't know. Like like which ones? So there's an episode of Voyager, I think it might be Scorpion, where uh, there's like a pile of dead Borg. And they basically use the action figures to make that pile of dead Borg. Oh, and that's then- funny. Yeah, and then later yeah. on, when they had uh, Tom Paris and Valana Torres' wedding, they had the wedding toppers be their Playmates action figures. <laughs> that's great. I love that. So yeah, it's something I just found out as well. It's, it's a pretty cool thing. They actually incorporated the toys in there. I don't know if they used yeah. like, much of the ships or that kind of thing in the series, but somehow mm-hmm. the action figures made it on. That's pretty exciting. Right. Well, they're a lot easier to transport and stuff. The ships were bigger. I mean, they did all those like quite large. Now, I assume that it was the uh, Chinese factories that were overseas who were responsible for making these ships, right? Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, it's like they either did or um, there was a, a guy in uh, Marina Del Rey, Matt Lazich, and he had a company called 3DID, and he did a lot of the vehicles and stuff for both the Turtles and the Star Trek and all the different Playmates uh, uh, lines. And uh, he's since got out of the business. He's actually doing automotive parts and stuff now he's really like hit the big time <laughs> now were there any characters that you ever wanted to make that playmates never got around to doing i can't really think of any um it's not really characters being made i just i wish we could have done things a little bit more action oriented and with maybe without as much articulation that's why i really like the the resin figures because, you know, you could just put them in, you know, action poses and you didn't have to worry about how they were going to pull out of molds or any of that kind of stuff. Because that, that's that's really what I would have rather been doing. But, you know, I it, you do what's offered to you. So now, did you also work on any of the Star Trek Happy Meal toys or any of the Hallmark ornaments, anything like that? Or were you purely figural? Uh, 
Well, uh, uh, not Hallmark. I don't think I did anything for Hallmark that I can think of, although I'm, we may have. And I don't remember specifically any McDonald's toys, but I, I have actually been doing working for McDonald's longer than Playmates. I started before them and I'm still working for them. I mean, we just finished two project lines for them just last week. <laughs> Can you tell us uh, what are some of the more memorable McDonald's lines that you worked on? Oh, my gosh. Um, 101 Dalmatians. Uh, between Scott and I, we did he did 50 and I did 50. We did some 100 years of Disney stuff. Um, actually, Scott got that. Scott and Rudy Vap, I think, did those. But I just helped Scott. I just pitched in and helped him out. Did a bunch of them for him. We did uh, um, Power Rangers for them. We did, oh, my favorite thing for McDonald's. And it's the first job I ever did for them. And it kind of like sealed the deal for me where they gave me pretty, gave us pretty much everything after that. There was a, a car uh, a line in the 80s. Um, and they were Looney Tunes or Tiny Tunes flip cars. And there was like, you know, uh, uh, one character, you know, in like a boat, right? And then you'd push her down and flip it up. And then on the other side, there'd be a race car and there'd be a different character. And the cool thing about that is they just gave me the concept that I had to work out everything. And I am not mechanically inclined, but I had to work out all the mechanics and everything. So I pretty much did that from beginning to end and, and you know, uh, delivered to them like finished products that they could tool. And, you know, they were like so happy that they just like I was their guy after that. So it was really cool. <laughs> Yeah, I love that, that line too. I had a bunch of those as a kid. Yeah, I still have a bunch of my. I, I I'm not sure if I have any of the prototypes anymore. I think I have some castings, but that's it. So eventually, the Star Trek line did conclude with Playmates during that era, but it would be mm -hmm. a few years later when they would get it back when they would start working on the J.J. Abrams Star Trek films. However, those toys were quite different from what I grew up with, uh, and personally, yeah. they're kind of not that great. So, uh, what, what's your and thoughts on them? And we didn't do them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they they did not come to us. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I just talked to them about that not that long ago, uh, like yesterday, um, literally yesterday. Um, so yeah, they're they're, and I wish we would have been able to do them. Because they, they were a victim of exactly what I was talking about. Everything was like sucked in, sucked in. They probably sculpted them too skinny to begin with. And then by the time they went through manufacturing, they were just unrecognizable practically. Live and learn, man. Yeah, it's definitely a disappointing line. And uh, to be honest, I don't even really own too many of them because they're just not that exciting. They're not that good to look they at. They're not that good like, to display. They don't even hardly look like the characters. It's just, yeah. Yeah, that too. I know. Not did you do any other Star Trek work for like Diamond Select or any other companies? Um, no, not for Diamond. We do a lot of other stuff for Diamond, but uh, not though, not that. No. I'm pretty sure I own a bunch of those. Like I, I just saw, in fact, at a uh, mall recently, there was the uh, Catwoman piece from Batman the Animated Series that mm -hmm. Warner Studios did. Right, uh, right. So folks, yeah, my my daughter actually does a lot of those. She's, yeah, I was actually she's ask a about that. ass sculptor. <laughs> yes, yeah, I know your daughter Michelle. Right, she's basically yeah. uh, next line to take over the company, more or less. Right. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So, so she's yeah, like, she's she's doing a lot of those. Her and the her and the guys, you know, yeah. But she's she's uh, really into that, and she's she she really likes working with the guys over at Diamond. I like the guys at Diamond too. They're we've had a relationship with them for a long time, and they're just all really great. Yeah, for folks who don't know, you know, I have a YouTube channel here, which is youtube.com slash today. And if you're watching the video mm-hmm. version, you already know that. Uh, but we do a ton of reviews of Diamond products, a lot of their statues in particular, and their action figures. And they're a great company, making some great products. And uh, it's really mm-hmm. cool, again, to be talking to someone who's had a hand in making those really wonderful pieces. Right, yeah. And even when, I, when I've when i had my own lines, when I've, you know, because uh, I, I have manufactured a few things myself. And even had my own toy company for a while, and I always, I always uh, distributed through them, and you know, they were great to work with. So outside of Star Trek, I have a few other toy-related questions here for you, and this one's basically we're going from Trek to Star Wars, and mm-hmm. uh, I believe that you you put some photos of these on your Instagram. Uh, there was a time when that Star Wars license were up, was up for grabs, right? And Playmates was going after it. So can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about uh, that period of time and the fact that? Playmates kind of sort of made a Star Wars toy. Oh, yeah. Well, we we actually sculpted a lot of stuff for Star Wars just for their pitch. You know, we did, you know, we sculpted Luke Skywalker. We, we uh, um, in fact, he, in fact, in that scene when he was, you know, uh, fighting Darth Vader behind that big, you know, window. And we just did the whole diorama and stuff. And, and, uh, and then a number of other characters too, you know, Leia and, and, but then they didn't get the license. I mean, we still have the prototypes, but, um, you know, I, I think there was a number of companies that were that were pitching that. It was kind of, uh, you know, everybody knew Hasbro was going to get it. They were just negotiating with Hasbro and making everybody else, you know, foot the bill for it. <laughs> now, I believe you also done uh, some pro wrestling toys, right? Oh, yeah, a lot of them over the years. We did a lot for LJN and mainly LJN. So you're but working like the very first line of, of WF figures, right? Yeah. Uh huh. So yeah, again, Andre like, the Giant and all those guys. <laughs> yeah. So did they ever send you to any events to take photos or meet the guys? No. Ah, uh, that's no, sad. <laughs> but, but we get prototypes back, you know, all busted up because, you know, they bring them over to. Uh, the wrestling guys to approve them and they'd be like throwing them around and stuff to each other. And, you know, half the time they'd hit the floor and whoops. Okay. Fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you also did those really amazing Ninja Turtle WWE crossover figures from a few years ago too, right? Yeah. The ones in the little, the little cars. Yeah. Those were great. Those were fun. We did the, the WWE guys. And then we did the crossover with the Ninja Turtles and fun. A lot of fun. Yeah, those pieces are really great. They're, you know, still talked about a lot in the wrestling toy community because I'm part of that world as well. Mm -hmm. And everybody loves those toys. They rave about those. Yeah, well, they were fun to do and they were very creative. I tell you, sometimes those guys at Playmates really hit it out of the park. And sometimes they don't. (laughs) Oh, we'll leave that at that. (laughs) Yeah, well, that, but you know, that's, that's the way any, you know, great company is, you know, you gotta, you gotta swing for the fences and you don't always hit a home run. (laughs) Since I know there's a bunch of stuff behind you that we haven't shown, do you want to do like a little show and tell of the different things you have behind you? Yeah, sure. I can do that. So you were talking about Ferengues. Here's, here's a, a, this is an original wax of one of the Ferengues right here. Um, I'm not sure which guy this is. That looks like it might be uh, Rom, maybe. 
I don't know if that was actually yeah. released or not. I can't really tell. Not sure. So as far as I know, I don't think any Ferengi actually came with knives or anything like that. So that's an interesting piece. Let me see piece. if I can get the light here a little closer. Ooh, that's just washing it outward. And here, speaking of favorite characters, here's one of my favorite characters. I don't know about the toy being my favorite character, but the, char- the character from the show is one of my favorite. Mud, Harry Mud. Yeah, Mud is an excellent figure. I love the likeness in that one. That's like one of my favorites. It's also, I think, one of the more rare, more valuable pieces as well. Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah I mean, I love him. I think he's great. And here, I think this is a Bashir. Yeah, I'm actually not sure which one that is either. I don't know if uh, that doesn't look too familiar to me. I think it's Bashir. We 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 did. The, there's several different heads of Bashir, but I think this is just one version because most of them he's got shorter hair, but this one his hair is a little bit is longer. Here's a here's a car, just a regular, and uh, a data. These are urethanes. That's polyurethane resin, right? Yeah. So that's what we would make them in before they would go to manufacturing. We'd make a, a, a couple, but we would paint. Here's a couple of first shots. A lot of times they'd send us first shots from the factory. And they call them first shots because they would just shoot them in whatever happened to be in the injection molding machine. You know, so a lot of times they'd come in multicolors and stuff. But uh it's for some reason uh, collectors like to collect these things so steve you've been working in the toy industry for decades now and i know things are not the way they were back when you first started so how has the industry changed and how have you and varner studios adapted to meet those changes well i think the main uh the main change has been uh uh going to digital and uh we were like early adapters of that i i um I bought my first uh, seed of Freeform, which is a, a sculpting program that we still use and, and uh, uh, was pretty much one of the main ones you could use back then. And uh, a 3D printer and a 3D scanner I bought in 1999. And, but it took us literally probably you know close to a decade to figure out how to use it so that that's we started it in in digitally because in the beginning what we would do is we'd rough out a clay like we always did we'd bring it over to the scanner we'd 3d scan it bring it in work on it you know digitally as far as we could you know and then we'd print it out and then finish it you know in wax or sculpey or whatever and then eventually we got to the point where we could just start them in digitally and and uh, finish them digitally. And we've been doing that for, I don't know, the last 15 years at least. So everything is digital for the last maybe 15 years or so. And as we mentioned earlier in this interview too, you have dabbled in actually making your own toys, making your own toy line. And mm-hmm. you know, when I mentioned in a lot of Star Trek Facebook toy groups that I was talking to you, they were like were saying, oh man, he should go and make his own Trek toys or make his own quote unquote faux Trek toys and kind of find mm-hmm. a way to dance around the license. Uh, have you ever thought about doing something like that? You know, thinking about it and doing it is two different things. Dancing around licenses is kind of dangerous work. And uh, uh, unless you've got a team of lawyers behind you, you know, it's probably not a good idea to do. Um, 
unless you can kind of go under the radar and just sell a few of them or something. But, you know, that's that's not the way the toy business works. Unfortunately, it's difficult. I mean, when you're doing resins like the like the, uh, you know, something like the, the Borg like this, I mean, you can probably make a thousand of them and and uh, a manufacturer will do that. If you're tooling for an actual toy, I mean, you have to make tens of thousands of them and you don't know if you're going to sell tens or thousands of them. So if you do, that's great. You can make money, but you know, you probably got to make at least 10,000 to make your, to make any kind of decent profit. And if you make 10,000, you end up selling 2000. It means you've got like 8,000 of them sitting in a warehouse somewhere that you're paying, you know, thousands of dollars a month just to store them and no way to get rid of them. And uh, I've been in that position before, especially because I've done, I did one toy company where it was my own license, which is kind of the kiss of death. I knew it going in and I did it anyway. And, and uh, well, you know, that's the way it goes. Which was that license? That was uh, the big Oths license. They were, uh, we did these, uh, uh, it was called uh, the company was called Bleeding Edge, and we did these uh, so goth dolls and action figures and plush toys, and we, we did it for about eight years. And it, we did it turn in the beginning, it, we it, it sold very well, but then it just kept selling less and less and less. And unfortunately, you can't make less and less because you know every. You know, at the very least, you can do is maybe five thousand of each, and if you're selling two or three thousand of each, you know you're you're losing money on every line. So at at some point, you got to go. Well, this is fun, but you know I can't pay for my fun. I gotta I gotta go back to work. <laughs> well, you've done some amazing work over the many many lines you've worked on, and uh, you know, as we wrap this up today, I gotta ask you, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? I don't know. I, I, I love it. I think the Star Trek universe is great. You know, I mean, it's so much different than Star Wars. But then on the other hand, I don't know if Star Wars is Star Wars anymore either. So, I mean, it's it's much more low key and more of a, you know, a, a, a message in every, you know, you know, storyline it, it has a message. And I like that. Whereas Star Wars kind of started out that way, but I think they got really confused lately where they don't know whether good is evil or evil is good or, you know, and, but with, with Star Trek, they out, they, they're pretty consistent. They, they, you know, they have good messages. Yeah. That's why I stick with Star Trek and I don't go near the Star Wars stuff, even though I am a fan of those toys. I had those too as a kid. Yeah. I've never talked to you about it, but I feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> So, Steve, thank you so much for sharing with us some of these really cool stories, some of these very interesting stories about your time at Playmates and some of the Trek figures you've worked on. Uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure to be able to chat with you and to meet you because, again, your hands are responsible for creating my childhood memories, which have ultimately made me who I am. Whether that's good or bad, you can decide. But, uh, you know, you've had quite an influence on me growing up, so I want to thank you for that. And on behalf of all the Star Trek toy buyers out there, too, as well, just, you know, our gratitude for all your excellent work on this wonderful line. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's been fun.
it's I, I love doing it and it's like you know you just do it over the years and you don't understand how it's affecting people you just sort of do it because that's your job so steve thank you so much appreciate all your time today and uh, just one last thing before we go out of here for folks who want to follow you on social media how can they do that you can check our instagram page which is uh, just varner studios or i have my own personal instagram page which is steve underscore r varner um and uh, that's, I think that's uh, pretty much it. Or our website, uh, varnerstudios.com. All right. Well, Steve, thank you so much for chatting today. And of course, as we say all the time, live long and prosper. All right. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you're in a position to financially support the show, please consider becoming a supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold or pick up some merchandise from our Redbubble store. If you're looking for direct links for any of these things, links will be right in the show notes. If you have any questions or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest, or discuss any sponsorship ideas with us, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Trek Untold and for continuing to support this show. I hope you'll come back next time to learn more stories about Star Trek and beyond. Until then, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and always remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by Treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.